Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, as campus left-wingers attack an Ivy League law professor for taking traditional American positions on affirmative action, we look behind the growth and institutional defense of ethnic preferences. This is the Influence Watch podcast. In yet another leftist blow-up on college campuses, radical students and faculty are attacking University of Pennsylvania Law School professor Amy Wax. Professor Wax was attacked last year for writing an op-ed defending so-called bourgeois values, things like staying off drugs, not having children outside marriage, working hard, and respecting valid authority. She recently provoked even more outrage from leftists on campus after making comments critical of the effects of affirmative action. UPenn banned Wax from teaching an introductory course after the brouhaha. This debate over affirmative action goes back decades and involves one of the biggest left-wing influencers of them all, the Ford Foundation, which until recently was the largest foundation in the country with over $12 billion in assets. It's been a key player in bringing racial preferences into the academy and government policy. In particular, the Ford Foundation helped turn law schools into what Cato Institute scholar Walter Olson memorably called schools for misrule. Now, Mike, let's start with just the background. What is happening at University of Pennsylvania? So Professor Wax uh, has outlined some culturally conservative views, which if we know anything about universities, even if you're, you know, a questioning centrist, you're tarred and feathered as a Nazi. Um, but what Wax has written uh, back in August, she wrote an op-ed with, with someone else calling for a return to bourgeois culture, essentially middle-class values of the 1950s. Now, if you are a uh, one of these professional campus activists in your, uh, as you mem memorably call their cubicles, the veal pen, uh, then, uh, you know, 1950s doesn't mean middle-class white picket fence. It means Jim Crow laws. It means segregation. It means, uh, you know, a return to women barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Um, so combine this tendentious reading of her of her op-ed with some comments with uh, the usual sort of uh, campus brouhaha, uh, roughly half the, of her colleagues in the Penn Law faculty uh, called for her to be, to be sacked, to be, to be fired. Um, and uh, the dean asked her to take a leave of absence and to not teach introductory courses anymore. Uh, at that time, she refused. Uh, she's a tenured professor. She has the academic freedom rights. Um, so she was able to refuse. Yep. Now, uh, I want to jump in and point out that the school uh, quite dubiously claimed, oh, no, 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 we weren't trying to force her to take a leave of absence. Uh, this was this was a regular, regularly scheduled sabbatical, blah, 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 which likely means that they were just lying through their teeth, which sadly college administrators that do often these that, days. that sounds like a prevarication but <laughs> the uh well i'm i'm thinking too now I, I this is a whole very messy subject i don't want to get into the whole thing by any means but the but uh last school year when uh the very controversial milo yiannopoulos was trying to do something at berkeley the the school's comments in the media were very different from the emails that the students who were trying to organize the event were receiving from the college administrators. So that, that's just, there are many examples where what they say uh, when speaking to the New York Times reporter would appear to be quite different from what's actually going on. I mean, look, I'm going to say flatly, if you're a college Republican or a college conservative and you are considering a, a speaker that you are bringing to campus, do not bring Milo Yiannopoulos uh, <laughs> well, for any for any of a number of reasons that are irrelevant that are irrelevant to this discussion. Well, but I didn't mean to get us off <clears throat> off track from from Ms. Wax because she didn't just get in trouble for that op-ed. She also more recently got in trouble because someone <clears throat> found 
uh, video of her with a Brown University professor, Glenn Lowry, who himself is African-American, uh, on the topic of affirmative action. So can you tell us more about that? Right. So this is what Wax says. This is, this is a, 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 the quotation. Take Penn Law School or some top 10 law school. Here's a very inconvenient fact, Glenn. I don't think I've ever seen a black student graduate in the top quarter of the class and rarely, rarely in the top half. I can think of one or two students who scored in the top half in my required first year course. Needless to say, such a, let's be, let's be frank, stereotypical uh, uh, statement <clears throat> was going, you know, is going to be controversial, is going to be, uh, to be looked at with skepticism uh, by, certainly by campus left and campus center left figures. Uh, as a result, there was another, another blow up, and this time the dean said, claimed the right to discipline Wax and kicked her out of, out of teaching first year courses. Yes, yeah, so, so she did get <clears throat> the punishment that time. Um, of course, the interesting question is, uh, if the University of Pennsylvania Law School wishes to show just how gravely inaccurate her statement supposedly is, it is entirely within its means to do so. The, yeah, the one of the one of the side controversies to this is that in his statement, the dean said that Wax's claim was factually inaccurate. Now, it's probable that it's exaggerated. Uh, the claim that a black student has never in however many years that Wax has been teaching at UPenn, graduated in the top quarter, strikes me as implausible. Uh, strikes, me as an, strikes me as an exaggeration. But the, let's say, broader, broader claim that the, <clears throat> the African-American students at Penn, because it is a fact that Penn uses substantial racial preferences to construct its fresh its 1L class don't don't do proportionally well that strikes me as plausible and the uh, the uh, the Penn administration says it's obviously false but we won't give you the data to back that up even anonymized data to back that up yep. um, interestingly Glenn Lowry the black professor at Brown who was interviewing her uh, he wasn't pleased by uh, what their conversation produced, and he said uh, this entire argument coming from the dean of Penn Law School to justify Amy Wax's removal from teaching a required course with which she has a long been involved is transparently dishonest in my view. So he's with me on administrators' honesty. Uh, right, levels. right. Um, and and he was very you know he was very clear in the op-ed that he wrote for the Daily Pennsylvanian, which is the campus newspaper at Penn. Uh, that he would not state his position on the substance of what Wax had said. Uh, now, that means that he might agree, he might disagree, because what he said is, I'm not going to say that I disagree, even if I do, because I don't want to cede that, uh, I don't want to cede that moral authority to the mob. Yep. So I'm just going to leave you in limbo. Yeah, and he was emphatic that uh, one of the leading uh, law schools in the country is removing a professor from classrooms for having unpopular opinions, period. So uh, uh, obviously, uh, professors' opinions alone should not be uh, a, a central way in which it should not, should not be the, the, the driving factor in how they are treated by their own Sure, and, there, and there's a whole, uh, you know, the whole principle of scholarly inquiry in the United States is academic, the principles of academic freedom, which were outlined by the American Association of Unity, University Professors way back in the early 1900s. Uh, which, and still a powerful influencer. Still, still, still a powerful in influencer. Some of its chapters are associated with the American Federation of Teachers Teachers Union, uh, depending on what the collective bargaining law is applicable to the university is. This is not relevant to this conversation. Um, but, you know, these AAUP principles, which are which almost every, certainly every major university, you know, they're, you're going to have some like Christian schools that say that you have to follow Christianity or something. Um, but, you know, a major school like Penn is going to 
support these academic freedom principles, uh, which would allow, which basically say that it, and in some cases it doesn't matter how abhorrent your, your beliefs are. They're, you know, professors at, I believe it was at Rutgers, who were openly spewing anti-Semitism on their Facebook page. And what Rutgers, uh, Rutgers said, we'll look into this, but we probably can't do anything because of academic freedom. Uh, the, uh, so this is something that's supposed to be taken very seriously and taken very seriously even if, it, even if it's beyond the pale. Yep. Uh, so what, what Penn has done is, is, is very radical. Yes. Now, uh, it is true that there are no public figures data for uh, UPenn Law School, but the, uh, the LSAT, the test people take to get into law school, um, uh, done by the College Board, I believe. I'm not certain. Uh, I think it's still the College Board, but in any event, the, uh, the LSAT folks, they do keep statistics uh, on this kind of thing to some degree. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, you know, I believe this was in a piece by Mark Bauerline, um, who is a professor at Emory, in the in the Weekly Standard, uh, that and who has worked, who is an English professor and has worked on um, college admissions tests, uh, test committees before. He said uh, that the LSAT publishers have have studied this and that they have found that it's a statistic statistically negligible number of African-American students score above a 172. Uh, the average for all entrants, all 1Ls at Penn is 169. What this means is that the average, the slightly above average incoming Penn freshman is in the statistical stratus, like stratosphere of the entire population of African-American LSAT takers. Now, even in the general population, it's Penn Law. They're going to be in the high, high range. But you're, you're, picking a, from a very, you're picking from a very small pool. And Harvard's already had its go. Stanford's already had its go. Yale's already had its go. You know what kind of, it, yep. at some point what's left <laughs> so this gets us into a broader uh issue in affirmative action admissions in higher ed whether it's law schools undergrad med schools and the rest and that is uh the terrible problem of mismatch so can you tell us a bit about that so two uh two uh, an, an academic and a journalist who have studied this uh richard sander and stuart taylor uh, put it out a book in 2012 and called mismatch called mismatch um, and what they found quote large preferences often place students in environments where they can neither learn nor compete effectively even though these same students would thrive had they gone to less competitive but still quite good schools use the use a th hypothetical example you are not you're going into undergrad uh, you know, you have pretty good SATs that would get you into a good state school, like UCLA, UCLA, you know, William Mary UVA, uh, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, uh, but are probably not in not good enough to get into Harvard, Yale, Princeton. But you have an ethnic preference, so you get admitted to, let's say, Princeton. And then you go to Princeton and you realize, you know, I used to, again, I used to be kind of the smartest kid in my class. Now I'm at Princeton and, uh-oh, I'm in maybe the bottom quarter of entrance. And that, then you get fr frustration, you get uh, some sometimes struggling to, you know, struggling to make the make the step to not just an elite college, but a super elite college. And then in the worst cases, people wash out. Or, or in the slightly less bad cases, okay, they went in wanting to be a chemistry major. They end up washing out into a studies degree, or they end up washing out into a 
sociology degree that is less marketable, and then they have all this student debt that they have to service with a degree that is not as lucrative as the one they thought they were going to get. And meanwhile, if instead of to uh, take the sort of example you gave, uh, if they had simply gone to UCLA instead of UC Berkeley, they might be an A student, feelings uh, just as they did in high school, I'm one of the smart kids, confident, taking that chemistry major, etc. Taking that chemistry major going yeah. and going to work for pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And of course, uh, this has nothing to do with uh, your ethnic background or anything like that, it would be perfectly easy to do if you had simply, say, uh, affirmative action based only on uh, family income, you could easily take uh, kids from Appalachia who had similar not-so-great uh, preparation in K through 12, stick them in a school that was uh, more difficult than they were quite qualified for, they would wash out too. And they have, nothing, they'd, have the, they'd have the same problem. Yes, yeah. nothing. And, to do with and race. in fact, uh, Sander and Taylor, you know, they they point out that this sometimes also happens to athletes uh, yeah. who get a non-academic, who get a non-academic preference, go to go to school, and then throw obviously their athletic workload on top of on top of uh, on top of their uh, student response their student responsibilities. Uh, and then they can they can get into this situation. Yep. Now, I've talked to some friends who are experts in the academic world because one of the things that fascinates me is whether there have been studies. Let's take that, uh, our, keep our example. The UC Berkeley student admitted under preference who uh, flunks out, just to, in over his head, flunks out. How many of those kids actually then go to a UCLA right, and then, get their degree. Then, then, and go back, then go back to school. Yeah. Or how many, because again, we have to think, this kid is probably the first in his family who has ever gone to college. Right. He was heavily recruited by this ultra elite school. He was told, you're brilliant, you're wonderful, you belong here. He shows up, he discovers he doesn't really belong there and fl uh, flunks out. And so you go from this high of I'm on top of the world to I'm a miserable failure. Everybody's smart. I'm right. stupid. Right. It's, it's very easy to see that causing a psychological death spiral. Yes. That, that is not likely a helpful thing at all to that kid. And uh, interestingly, uh, as far as I've been able to determine, no one has ever done a proper study of what does happen to those kids. Now, I didn't look up the, the most recent numbers, but I can say that I vividly remember seeing the chancellor of UC Berkeley uh, on a news show some years back and he was uh, being criticized by uh, a conservative who pointed out that over 60% of the kids at Berkeley admitted under preferences flunk out, which is definitely a big setback of whether or not they recover, maybe somewhere down the line. That's a huge setback. Uh, and obviously they were admitted, and it happened. And it's happened year after decade after decade, so Berkeley knows perfectly well what it's doing, and uh, these kids are really being hurt. They are not genuinely being helped. And aren't you ashamed, Chancellor so-and-so? And to my amazement, the Chancellor was not remotely ashamed. All he did was continue to preen about how wonderfully virtuous Berkeley is because it helps these people even though it isn't helping but harming. Right. It's the, it, <clears throat> it's the classic, you know, good intentions leading, leading people down uh, you know, leading leading central planners down the down the 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 path of the path of perdition, uh, because again, it's entirely re like you can see where people in the 1970s, uh, <clears throat> around the time that the Ford Foundation is <clears throat> preparing these, uh, you know, and seeding litigation defenses and uh, you know ref and changing the law the law school curriculums, uh, you can see why somebody. In why an, a public administrator in 1970 would have thought that affirmative action might be a good idea. Uh, I read recently in Politico that one of that even no less a conservative luminary and reformed segregationist as William F. Buckley, uh, when he was running for mayor of New York City, in about what in 72, 65, 65, 65. Okay. In 65, uh, was open to to preferences, and he was open to preferences on the grounds that. In the late 1960s, America took a look at itself and look at, took a look at what it had done to African Americans and didn't like what it saw. 
uh, you know, 250 years of the slave power, 100 years of Jim Crow repression. That was a bad thing that we did. And look, you know, I mean, you've, you've now got a guilty conscience. You now want to do penance. You want to try to make right what you made, what you made wrong. And, well, you know, giving African-American kids a compensatory leg up seemed like a, you know, low-cost, easy, you know, we'll just put them on, we'll put them on the, we'll put them in the right track and it'll all get better. As, you know, as we'll discuss later, it didn't. Yeah. The, um, uh, well, you mentioned the Ford Foundation again, and let's turn to that. Obviously, uh, folks who go to influencewatch.org, uh, our website on influencers uh, will find an extensive entry on the Ford Foundation. You can also go to the capitalresearch.org, our main website, uh, and check for uh, articles tagged Ford Foundation because we have a number of, they, they've been exceedingly active uh, in this area in multiple ways. One of the ways is um, uh, the actual Supreme Court litigation on affirmative action, and we should, I'll just mention in passing that uh, it's a complete mess. That is to say, it's extremely unclear right, what right, the rules right. are. Right, so after at least $600,000 of Ford Foundation money, which supported the University of Michigan's defense of its affirmative action programs. Which is still the landmark which, which leading is still, case. Which is still the leading, the leading case. There was a case a couple years ago, but it basically upheld those University of Michigan decisions. Um, the you know what I what I just said about kind of why everybody thought that affirmative action might not be a bad idea about it being compensation for bad stuff that the country had done in the past, uh, the Supreme Court kind of talked itself out of that and talked itself into a different cul-de-sac uh, that you can't you can't say it's explicitly compensatory, but you can say that diversity is a compelling state interest and therefore you can use them to make diversity. So you have this thing that was designed to do something else that now the Supreme Court says you have to justify in some other way. And the result is a mess. Yes. And Sandra Day O'Connor, who was one of the most adept justices in our history at making messes like this, uh, famously included in one of these decisions sort of a vague hope that, well, I, I, I hope that you know, say in 25 years, this will go away, and we're now well into that 25 years. And as Amy Wax could That was 03, so we still got about another 10. <laughs> so, but but yeah, it's... Amy Wax would not say it's going away, I think. Uh, I, I mean, the, 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 the smart money, the smart money says that, says, suggests that things will stay more or less as they are. Um, but yeah, so this, the Supreme Court has made this dog's breakfast, and the Ford Foundation funded the cases that ended up in that dog's yeah. breakfast. Well, and, and I would be, uh, uh, I would add to that, that uh, this this was not, you know, often when a donor is accused of being manipulative, left or right, mm -hmm. you know, it may simply be that, oh, well, that donor for years has been giving money to this or that, and it didn't even know any of this was happening. It coming. That is not what we are talking about in the case of the 2001 uh, lawsuit. The Ford Foundation paid for all the university's lawyers. The Ford Foundation paid for conferences where all the various university actors like AAUP and the rest of the of all those influencers could gather to brainstorm. It paid for the Amici briefs, the the Amicus friend, Friends of the Court briefs. Um, this was absolutely and many and many and many of the many of the Amici, many of the. Um uh, of the of the other activist groups that were supporting the the University of Michigan in this case, uh, some of them had been spun off from the Ford Foundation many low yes, many some of low, them. low many years ago. Yes, uh, the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund was one of the uh, notable groups that back in the late back in the late nineteen sixties, uh, the Ford Foundation basically invents public interest law as we know it, which is where uh, you're a person you know you're a person who maybe can't afford a lawyer or maybe doesn't have access to a lawyer or maybe doesn't have access to a good enough lawyer, but you have a politically interesting case. So a third party, hello Ford Foundation, comes in and uh, basically takes you under their wing, funds your lawsuit against whatever political enemy the Ford Foundation is suing. Uh, and during the late 1960s, Ford Foundation spins off a bunch of groups, uh, MALDEF, the Sierra, Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, which is today known as Earth Justice, the Natural Resources Defense Council, one of the largest environmentalist groups in the country. 
you know, a bunch of others. The NAA, well, it didn't start the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. No, that had, been, that had been that had been around for decades. Mm-hmm. But the uh, in the litiga- in around the litigation about affirmative action, they were paying, they were supplying them with uh, millions of dollars. Yes. Now, I would add to uh, the you mentioned, uh, or I'm sorry, I mentioned earlier Walter Olson, a Cato Institute scholar, who's written one of the best books on all the things wrong at law schools. The book itself uh, is called Schools for Misrule and covers all kinds of problems at law schools. But uh, from that, we took the parts of that bo- uh, book that are yeah, specifically— back in, back, in, back in 2013, the Capital Research Center uh, excerpted, but it's not like they just took out—we just took out a chapter. It was—took from throughout the, from throughout the text uh, Olson's findings about the Ford, Ford Foundation— uh, and what it had done to law school curricula, uh, and how I mean, fu- fundamentally reoriented uh, the law school curriculum from the you know the law and how to practice as a lawyer to how to achieve social change. And of course, social change from the Ford Foundation means left wing social change. Um, yep. He Wally Olson also has in there the fascinating story of those public interest law firms that you were talking about. Now, it, it's now the fact that there are uh, lots of them left, right, and center. Right. Uh, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, Beckett Fund for, for Religious instance, Liberty, Institute for Justice, uh, on the Libertarian Property Rights Right, yeah. uh, and then, of course, you have dozens on the left. But the fascinating thing about that story was this is happening in the uh, 1970, give or take a couple of years, under the Nixon administration. and. The Ford Foundation masterminds who were saying, hey, this is great, we should do this. And by the way, one of their very first things was actually something we don't hear much about anymore, welfare rights, which is, say, expanding the ease of access to welfare programs, which, of course, under the great society of the previous president, LBJ, were exploding, but also expanded actually even more quickly under the Nixon administration, a Republican. Everyone forgets, and this is actually, you know, going back to something we discussed a couple episodes ago, um, the, the debate over gun control. Uh, so John Paul, John Paul Stevens, uh, Supreme Court Justice who had been appointed by Jerry Ford, um, w- wrote an op-ed in the New York Times calling for the outright repeal of the Second Amendment. And a bunch of like TV media liberals were like, oh, look, conservative Republican appointee John Paul Stevens. No, 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 no. Back in the, back really before 1980, uh, there was a very strong, very large, very powerful wing of truly liberal. You know, everyone says, oh, Jeff Flake's a liberal. Jeff Flake's not a liberal. He doesn't like the president. You know, he's maybe a bit of a, maybe a, bit of a, a flake, <laughs> but he's not a liberal. Lowell Weicker was a liberal. <laughs> yeah, uh, Republican re- senator which, from uh, Connecticut. Former, former Republican, later independent, later Democrat, senator and governor from Connecticut. Um, the, you know, John Lindsay... The former, former Republican mayor of New York, against whom William F. Buckley ran for mayor, yes, precisely uh, in pres- hopes of defeating him and helping the Democrat and helping, get the, helping the Democrat win. <laughs> Unfortunately, Mr. Buckley failed. Um, uh, was you know was a truly lib- was a true liberal Republican, um, and Richard Nixon and Jerry Ford uh, got a lot of their support from the liberal faction, the the so-called Rockefeller Republicans after. Uh, who would ultimately be Ford's vice president, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, for a long time. Yes. So, um, and an and an heir who has a lot of, who's later had uh, of the Rockefeller fortune, and the Rockefeller fortune has now been devolved into a bunch of philanthropy entities that you can see on Influence Watch. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, the to get back to that that fascinating story of when these were first being created, when the public interest law firms were first being uh, created. Uh, and as you say, spread in many different areas uh, of, of public policy around 1970. Um, the uh, Ford Foundation masterminds and their friends at places like the American Bar Association were genuinely concerned about the legal question of, well, we want these to be 501c3s because we, as a 501c3 private foundation, can only give our right, we billions. Can only, we can only we can only give that big stack of twelve billion dollars to 501c3 activities. Yes, to the public charity side of the 501c3 world. So we need to have them be. Cons- the IRS will have to recognize them as 
public charities. And the law for uh, explaining what's eligible for tax-exempt status as a public charity uh, says that it basically has to be charitable. And of course, we forget this now, but you know, suing people has not traditionally been considered a form of charity. My understanding is that it was illegal until like 1960-something. Yes. Um. Well, well, what they did is they were very scared about this. And Wally Olson in the Schools for Misrule book tells, tells the story very well. So they, they were very scared that this wouldn't fly, especially under the Nixon administration. And so they, uh, they lined up uh, the, the sitting president of the American Bar Association, a powerful influencer on InfluenceWatch.org, and about eight previous presidents of the American Bar Association, who are all, of course, going to say, we think it would be wonderfully charitable for the Ford Foundation to give billions of dollars billions of do- billions to of lawyers. Billions of dollars to our colleagues to <laughs> yes. do, what we love, do what we love best, writing briefs. <laughs> yes. in, a, in, a, in a rare case of lawyers encouraging uh, employment Lawyer, lawyers for encur- lawyers. Lawyers encouraging litigation, that's never happened, I'm sure. No. I'm sure. The, uh, although I will say one of my favorite Abraham Lincoln quotations is that there is no worse a person than someone who stirs up litigation. But anyway, so of course, Mr. Were, Lincoln was a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> they were very, very wealthy lawyer. Actually, he was quite wealthy when before he became president. He he made good money on the circuits. Uh, but um, so they line up these bar association presidents and they lobby hard in the Nixon administration. It actually was a close run thing. There were people in the Nixon administration uh, at the Treasury Department. Um, then I think under William Simon, who uh, later went on to, to run the, the conservative John M. Olin Foundation and also bequeathed the still existing William E. Simon Foundation with his own money. But anyway, um, the Simon Treasury Department, which oversees the IRS, uh, there were plenty of people who were not keen on this idea, but uh, with the heavy-duty lobbying of the administration, uh, the IRS finally said, okay, okay, it's charitable to sue people. Interestingly, one of the people on the squishy left side, then a man then working in domestic policy, but since then more famous for his work at the Defense Department, was Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, so that's an ironic little thing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that he uh, would look back today with pleasure at that, just as Eisenhower, another Republican mistakes, president. Mistakes were made. Yes. Well, Eisenhower, Republican president, famously said that naming Earl Warren to be chief justice of the Supreme Court was the, quote, biggest damn fool mistake I ever made. <laughs> um, so uh, speaking of, of Republican I, presidents. Liber, liber, and, liber, speaking of liberal Republicans and on the Supreme Court. Yes. But... Um, uh, so the oh, and by the way, we should say episode two uh, was the right. We, for, right, we 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 discussed uh, substantially the American Bar Association's influence in episode two of this podcast when we were discussing judicial nominations uh, relevant to the debate over affirmative action. The way the American Bar Association structures its uh, accreditation of law schools uh, essentially all but explicitly requires that. Uh, that law schools employ affirmative action. Um, yeah, so that is so that, that that is notable, and they have a and they and the bar association has a monopoly on on accreditation. So it's not like you could have, uh, you know, have an alternative and see if it worked better. Yes, no. As as we, I'll just say briefly to recap what we talked about this in episode two. The laws governing college accreditation are terrifyingly uh, perverse and. The, the public choice school of conservative libertarian uh, uh, economic theory talks about exactly the kinds of things they do. So yes, the Bar Association and the existing lawyers have a total monopoly on any future on the, supply on the, next, on the future supply, on the next, the, the uh, lawyers of tomorrow. And, and I can say, because when I was in, uh, on, at the White House Domestic Policy Council, uh, we wanted to try to do something about that area of the law because the, the, those associations, uh, not only are they tiny little cabals with great power because the American Psychological Association, for instance, does the same thing for graduate programs in psychology, which are responsible for the licensing of all social workers and things like that. But uh, anyway, we, we hope to try to make a difference there, but uh, it, it, the laws as written are so badly stacked against reform that uh, it was never possible. And, when, and once you have the established institution of the Bar Association, of the Psychological Association, of the whatever association, uh, once the 
you know, administration goes sniffing around to try to change things, or a couple of renegade congressmen introduce a bill. They call their friends, senator, you know, they call their friends, all the senators, you know, all the senators on the committee of, on the Judiciary Committee, you know, to have a reception where they make very clearly, very clear to, to, to the senators that uh, you don't want to do this or bad things will happen to you. <laughs> yes. And I would, I just, the last thing I will say is that the American Bar Association, of all the various accreditors, the American Bar Association was the biggest bully in precisely the kinds of uh, affirmative action, racial, ethnic preferences that we're talking about today. Absolutely the worst. Um, well, uh, we should say that there have been efforts on the right in this area as well. Typically, the efforts on the right were to try to have a level playing field for right. all races. Try, try to try to revert, reverse the preferences and try to end this mismatching. Um, the, Could you give us an example of that? Sure. The uh, the probably the most prominent. Uh, activist against aff affirmative action on the right has been Ward Connerly of the American Civil Rights Institute, um, who has uh, who has campaigned for uh, ballot measures and for litigation uh, to try to reverse them. I think he's he, like in some states he's actually won. There have been a few states that have passed the uh, the civil rights initiative. Um, thanks to his campaigning, uh, campaigning by him and others. Dinesh D'Souza many years ago was involved in this kind of thing. Uh, and we should say that uh, one of the more prominent funders was one of the most prominent conservative foundations, uh, the Lind and Harry Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee. It was a longtime supporter of Connolly's work. The, the irony to me is that the way those initiatives at the state level worked was to try to have uh, pass through a ballot initiative a state law that would enshrine the precise wording of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Right, because the the whole the whole you know notion of of racial preferences that the Supreme Court has talked itself into this into this uh, into this cul-de-sac has been trying to say why the public accommodation laws that say that you know you can't have. You can't discriminate by race in a private business. You can't discriminate by race, obviously, in the government, uh, in which we all, you know, with rare exceptions of some libertarians uh, and, you know, bad people. But most people agree are, ne you know, are necessary and proper. Uh, the That somehow we, you know, the Supreme Court has talked itself into this position where yeah, but actually that doesn't apply to universities. Yes, but though as we pointed out before, it's, it's rather unclear why that would be the case. Well, let's, uh, let's just add to uh, some of the other problems involved. Uh, one problem is that uh, there are studies that suggest that even after all these decades now of affirmative action efforts, uh, the actual numbers of black and Latino students uh, show them to be more underrepresented uh, than they were before. Right. You would think you would think that if affirmative action worked, that there that it would be kind of an identity property. That if oh, we just increase we increase this group, and then therefore they get closer to, to representation. Uh, a recent study from uh, late last year was published that found that it had actually gone the other way. Yeah. Uh, that they were actually further behind their share of the population yeah. than they were 35 years ago. Yeah. Now I think we should put. Plenty of the blame for that, again, on the preparation that they're receiving in K-12 before they get to college. Right. The, the, uh, you know, the notion that the public, you know, the public schools in, uh, in, poor, in poor areas, which just because of the geography, the, the ethnic geography of poverty in the United States is going to disproportionately hit African-Americans and Latinos, but it's all, I mean, it's also going to hit white kids in Appalachia. Uh, the idea that they're not getting an effective K-12 education and then that that's setting them back uh, uh, is, I think, fairly obvious to everyone. The only only question is, why is that the case? Yeah, and for that, we <laughs> urge listeners to go to our podcast on the teachers' unions uh, because they deserve you, a lot of the credit for you could, that. You could do worse than starting with the teachers' unions. Yeah. The, the other, the, there's another couple of problems that we should uh, point out, and one, of course, is that those preferences uh, at University of Pennsylvania Law School and elsewhere, um, they are typically not going to the, uh, 
the actual poorest uh, black and Latino kids, but much more likely going to upper crust black and Latino kids whose families have already made it into the right. top of society. Right, made they've made it at least into the, into the middle or upper middle classes. And then because everybody knows that these things go on, there's gaming the system. There's, okay, I have one great-great-grandfather who spent two years in Spain. You know, does he, do I now count as, as something, you know, as something? Uh, the, the great, the great question, uh, do the Portuguese count as Hispanic? <laughs> um, you know, we've had stories of prominent people who may have even fabricated, uh, uh naming no senators, but naming, naming, naming no senators, of course, um, but who may have fabricated family lore that suggested they had a, a, um, American in, Indian. That, that, yeah, in, in, in the, that they may have had uh, ethnic minority ancestry that they cannot substantiate. Yeah. And then, of course, there's another ethnic issue here. Um, I want to approach it by an older version that some of our younger listeners may not realize, but for a good bit of the first half to two-thirds of the 20th century, um, there were uh, ethnic quota systems at elite universities, but they were anti-Jewish quotas because the the uh, Jewish population the, spo- in America, the, spo- the spoiled rich kids of the Northeast were unable to compete with the <laughs> with yes. the with the with the uh, with the Jewish kids from Queens. Exactly, <laughs> you had you had uh, a Jewish population, uh, great intelligence and great emphasis on educational attainment, and they were pounding on the doors of the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard and Yale and elsewhere, and uh, there were strict quotas to keep them down. Uh, now there is a current, that is mostly gone away, but there is a current analog to that, is there not? So one of the, it's highly suspicious at Yale for the past several years, the proportion of the incoming freshman undergraduate population uh, that is Asian American has been 13 point about 5% plus or minus 0.4. Now, the Supreme Court has ruled that you can't use an explicit quota, uh, either to promote or obviously to uh, prohibit the entry of any uh, any ethnic community into your university. But gee, that's awful suspicious, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And well, in the University of California, because of course California has a very large Asian population because of its propinquity to the continent. The, and, the, and, and, the, and the, the heritage of Chinese migration before the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yes. So they have great problems with this. Uh, well, great irregularities in right. this relationship. Right. The, it, it is, uh, you know, a statistical fact that for whatever reason, is it discipline? Is it, uh, you know, per family staying together? Who knows? Uh, that Asian Americans do better than just about everyone at academic, you know, at academic stuff. And I want to, po- I would point out then that that if the kind of uh, uh, radical theories about structural racism and the rest were true. This would have to mean that uh, back in 1950, the Jews were oppressing uh, whites and blacks because they were, in fact, uh, performing better. And today, it would have to mean that Chinese kids say the, the notion, Koreans the are no, oppressing uh, the notion white kids. that the sons of uh, that the sons of interned Japanese uh, of Japanese internees uh, are. St- are the great oppressor would seem to be a bad fact yes. for the uh, for the notion. Maybe again, you know, I'm I'm probably more open than most people on the right to the uh, to the idea that there is at least legacy structural racism against African Americans because of exa- because of what happened to them, because of what was done to them. Um, but in the case of immigrant groups, uh, you know, I. I the fact that the that Asian Americans have done so well is a bad fact. <laughs> yes. So now, well, uh, speaking of that very word, legacy, um, let's uh, be sure that we put on the table one of the standard replies that defenders of uh, ethnic preferences give, which is, "What about legacies? If Daddy and Granddaddy and Great Granddaddy went to Harvard, 
you get to go to Harvard. Right. On the, and, and on the subject of bad facts, the, you know, it stings maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit tougher because the, you know, the standard sort of uh, intelligentsia conservative in the writing in the Weekly Standard or National Review who's uh, complaining about affirmative action uh, may be one of these, may be one of these legacies or may wish to pass on his legacy to his children. I confess uh, I once dated a young lady who was the 14th generation of her family to attend Harvard. <laughs> um, the, so what all of these uh, super elite, super selective universities have is a legacy preference, which is that if dad or dad's dad or dad's 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 and so on and so forth went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, whatever, then little Johnny gets a leg up. And so what the defenders of racial preferences will say is that, well, hold on, you know, you are not opposing explicitly these legacy preferences, but you're opposing uh, giving a leg up to the poor black kids from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, well, gee, that's a bad fact for you, isn't it? It's a little bit more, in, in reality, it's a bit more complicated. Um, because if you're an elite liberal who has used or hopes to use legacy preferences, that's a bad conscience fact. Because, again, what's if, if you take liberals at their word, if you take progressives at their word, what is the animating force of, prog- of progressivism as an ideology? It's to eliminate unearned privilege, eliminate unearned advantage. And there is no more unearned advantage than passing on, because I went to Harvard, my son gets to go to Harvard or my daughter gets to go to Harvard. And, you know, you and your heart of hearts know this is a bad fact. So you can salve your conscience by sticking up for, uh, for, uh, racial prefer- for racial preferences, all the while you've created a system that you can then throw, throw in the face of your opponents. Yep. The other thing I, we need to remember, too, is the whole reason that uh, tests like the SAT, the LSAT, MCAT, and the rest were created was precisely to change elite institutions like the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard from being purely legacy institutions and instead being meritocratic institutions. And Charles Murray, I know, has written that in 1950, Harvard was a lot of rich kids with a few smart kids thrown in. And in 1960, just 10 years later, thanks to the adoption of SAT uh, and in admissions, Harvard went to switched completely to being a bunch of smart kids with a few rich kids thrown in. And by the way, I'd add on the legacy thing: uh, the when colleges give legacies uh, a leg up, whether however yeah, much however, we may deplore that, the the motivation there is not to maintain a a white supremacy or cis hetero patriarchy. No, it's strictly it's pecuniary. It's strictly pecuniary. <laughs> <laughs> it's because great granddaddy made a fortune in oil, and you still have a good bit of it that you haven't spent on drugs yet. So we'll be happy to take it. And that too, by the way, fits with uh, one last thing we should get in. We started with with poor Professor Amy Wax, the University of Pennsylvania Law School professor, whose first great offense against decency was to say that all children, whatever their melanin content of their skin or their ethnic background, will do well if they attempt to have the boring, old-fashioned, bourgeois virtues. That will actually make their lives Better. Right. There's considerable evidence, uh, like empirical evidence, sociologists have gone out and studied it, that uh, if you, I think the key, th- the key three that the Institute for Family Studies calls the, the success sequence uh, is getting your, getting your high school education or higher, uh, which makes you, basically makes you employable, uh, waiting to have children until you're married, and having at least one of your married spouses working. Uh, they're is, you know, doing those three things doesn't guarantee... In that order. It, yes, in, in, that, in that order. Uh, doing those three things in that order doesn't guarantee that you'll stay out of, that you'll stay out of poverty. But most people who are, who, uh, you know, al- almost all people who avoid poverty do those three things in that order. Yeah, well, and actually, and it does work the other way, which is to say, um, if you do those three things in that order, the odds that you are in poverty are 
just a few percent. Yeah. It is exceedingly rare for someone to do those things uh, and, in fact, be impoverished. And 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 I'll I'll point this out. Even though, you know, more of even though there are still you know ethnic ethnic gaps, and we can you know the debate on why that is, uh, you know, is hundreds of books of a sociology textbook. Um, the in in regardless of your ethnicity, following the success sequence yields better outcomes. You know, it may not yield as good an outcome for African Americans as it does for whites. I don't know why that is. I don't think anybody knows why that is. But it does yield a better outcome than African Americans who didn't follow the success sequence. Yes, which is to say, the folks who who defend uh, extreme racial preferences and attack people like Professor Amy Wax are not, in fact, helping the people they claim to be helping. Uh, or, or maintaining the, the the good standards of great institutions like the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So I'm gonna I'm gonna close this out with a, a few sentences from uh, a University of Pennsylvania Law School professor uh, student, Adam Hobson. He was graduated in '08, uh, and he was defending Amy Wax in the Wall Street Journal with this letter to the editor. Uh, and it reminds us too that the Amy Waxes of the world are also very unjustly treated in, in this kind of system by the powerful influencers we've been talking about. Uh, so Adam Hobson, Penn Law 08, writes, how horrible to learn that my alma mater has barred the first year 1Ls course from being taught by the wonderful Amy Wax. 13 years ago, I took her civil procedure course. Even then she was known for controversial views, but all the noise fell away as soon as you entered the classroom. Her course was the most rigorous and challenging in the school because she respected every student and demanded excellence across the board. That should not be rare at a school like Penn, but it was, and we loved her for it. Her senior level classes were always oversubscribed. When it came time for our class to award a top teaching honor, the vote was overwhelming, Amy Wax. When I speak to more recent alumni and students, they're unanimous in singing her praises, and the loudest are usually the ones who didn't agree with her. What a shame the administration caved to the pressure of a few and decided to deprive future 1Ls of this exceptional teacher. So uh, I, I will let Mr. Hobson there have the last word. That is our show for this week. If you are listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube. You can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.